I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. You know, I'm going to keep it short with the preamble today because we know what this episode is about. Thanksgiving is just a week away, and we want to get you all set up with tips, inspiration, and some simple dishes you're really going to want to put on your table. And we're going to start first with the wonderful author, Amy Thielen. Once a chef in high-flying New York City restaurants, she spent the last decade or so back home in northern Minnesota, writing absolutely wonderful books about Midwestern food. Her new book, Company, is all about how to host terrific dinner parties with no fuss or stress, which makes her a natural to help us out today. Hey, Amy, it's great to see you. Hey, Francis, thanks for having me. Congratulations on the book. It It's so wonderful. The writing is so good. You know, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a cookbook nerd and I really love it when I can sit there and read and just like love falling into the world of this, you know, into this cook's life and this cook's mind. Um, you know, I just love that experience. Um, Aw, thank you. But we're here to talk for very practical reasons because you have a whole chapter on Thanksgiving <laughs> in this book. So it's very apropos. And, yes. you know, I guess we don't really talk turkey that much on our show because there are literally a hundred ways to do it. I actually don't think there is a single best way. I'd rather talk about all the other That's dishes. That's controversial anyway. right there. Yeah, but you know, like, <laughs> what am I to tell you? Like, That's not right. You got to drive right. Let, let them cook turkey the way they want to cook it. Well, I think that, you know, for a lot of people, it, it's not like um, we, we get up in the morning and, you know, get your hands right into uh, some poultry <laughs> on a daily basis. <laughs> I feel like, you know... It's in the morning. You're up. You've had your coffee. You've got your hands in the sink and a cold turkey. Yeah. You know, I mean, that feels like Thanksgiving to me. But it's that that intimacy with with the bird that is kind of important. And you know, I mean, I I like to cook, obviously, and I I like to work with whole birds on you know chickens all the time. Mm-hmm. But I I do think that there's something kind of sacramental about just like you're going to focus on this on this centerpiece and you're going to get your hands into it, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're going to try to understand it. See, okay. So this is what I want to talk to you about because you do have a technique in this book for a preparation step of the turkey that I have not seen articulated the way you do before. So like so many recipes for turkey involve like first you grab a stick of butter, you know, rub the butter all over the turkey and then you shove as much butter as you can under the skin, so between the skin and the meat. And you don't do that. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely use butter, but I reserve that for the dressing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, but the reason that I don't put butter underneath the skin of the turkey is because, you know, butter contains water. Mm-hmm. And when that butter is melting and evaporating, that water will rise up and steam the skin. So, I mean, scientifically, you're kind of at a losing battle right there. Mm. Not to mention that, you know, the the skin over the breast of the turkey, and we usually roast all of our birds, you know, breast up. So it's the thinnest part of of all the skin on the turkey. Mm-hmm. And it's also, you know, covering the most delicate meat, the breast meat, which dries out the quickest. So the thing is, if you use another kind of fat, uh, a dense animal fat, and I use lardo or sometimes just actually lard, <laughs> rendered lard, um, 
you get rid of, you don't have any butt, any water in that. And so that fat is still like basting the meat beneath and it's, um, also basting the skin and kind of frying it from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And there's no water to get in the way there. Yeah, that is so interesting. So tell us more of your Thielen turkey secrets. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I live in northern Minnesota in the middle of the country. So my my choices are, you know, I think pretty universal, like pretty common to a lot of people where my grocery store is not necessarily stocking, oh, super fancy pants, turkeys, you mm-hmm. know, I have to really watch all the labels and make sure that I'm not buying something that has too much brine, mm-hmm. you know? Like the pre-brine turkeys. Yeah, I'm looking at that percentage and making sure that it's as low as I can. Because, you know, the more natural the turkey is, the better the skin is going to be, the thicker the skin is going to be. And that, I am looking for that. So I'm looking for something that, you know, I like to buy a turkey where I can I can really see it. It's maybe it's... um in plastic, but it's clear and I can like make sure that everything looks good, you know? Yeah. But it kind of depends on what you want to spend too. Sure. You know, sometimes you feel like you want to splurge and get this, like, sometimes I pre-order or order a more natural bird from a smaller store or a co-op or something. And sometimes I'm just like, all right, I'm just going to the store. I'm going to get the best thing they've got. Yeah. So when you're looking at the labels and you're looking at the, and they, and they indicate the brine percentage, what are you looking for? Like what's too high, what's too low, what's just right? Well, um, you know, two, three, four percent is probably is the best you can hope for, you know? Mm, okay. Um, that's probably the lowest that, that I've seen personally. And then I've also seen turkeys that say the brine is up to like seven, eight, nine percent. And then I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, this is like one step away from lunch meat here. Yeah. This is very salty. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> you yeah. can't you can't add that much to it. And when you have that much brine, it, it's hard for the skin to crisp. Mm, okay. And so when you bring home these pre-brined turkeys, obviously you don't actually then further brine them, right? Like it would just get too salty. Oh, definitely. So so that's going to affect like how much salt I, you know, put on the outside of the bird or rub the bird with. And I don't, I don't do a wet brine any longer. Mm. I don't know. I just found to be like, I'm just like, I need a bucket. It's just like, I have to clear all the space. It's just yeah, so I think large. You need like a kiddie pool. Yeah. I, <laughs> sometimes, right? And so I just thought, okay, well, I know that, you know, scientifically, like if I just rub the, the salt and the pepper into the bird inside and outside and I put it in the fridge for a while to dry mm-hmm. and to sit with it, that's going to basically have the same effect. It's not going to add, you know, moisture or water, but hopefully we're not going to dry it out in the oven. So we're going to preserve what it's got. Yeah. But, you know, if you want that crispy skin, you want kind of a dry touch to the outside before mm-hmm. you put it in the oven. Mm-hmm. So that drying before, you know, it goes in is is really essential, I think. Yeah, right on. And the pre-salting. Yeah, yeah. So you mean literally like, don't put it in plastic. If it's in plastic, take it out of the plastic. Don't cover it. Yeah. Just let it hang out and let the air really sort of dry the skin out. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. That's, you know, I, I rub it with salt and pepper and then I let it, the, the air from the fridge dry it out, which is the same principle behind, you know, like um, any of that Chinese roasting with like mm-hmm, Peking duck mm-hmm, or, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. You really do need the dry skin. Yeah. All right. So let's move beyond the turkey to go with the turkey. Um, mm-hmm. obviously mash them if you got them, but you have this amazing alternative potato recipe you call Funhouse baked potatoes. What are those? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a, a potato that my mom always made. 
And Fun House is the name of the social hall in the small town that she grew up in, Piers. Everybody got married at the Fun House. And, you know, lots of parties took place at the Fun House. And it was aptly named. But there were these women who cooked at the Fun House. And they would do potatoes for large groups, like 100 people, 200 people. Mm -hmm. And they would slice the potatoes in half when they're raw. And then Lengthwise you rub or? it with butter. Yeah, uh, horizontally. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah, so you sure, have sure. the potatoes horizontally. And then you crosshatch them. So cut them kind of like you would cut uh, a mango or an avocado to get cubes, but not all the way through the skin. Okay. And then you... So you're slicing into the flesh, but keeping them as potato halves. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a better way to say it. Yes. It's a team effort. um so after you've crosshatched the potato then you you on the top you slather kind of a seasoned butter that's you know salt pepper paprika maybe a little lemon zest if you want Mm -hmm. and and thyme and you you know slather that on top of that crosshatching and then you anchor it with a little slice of onion and then you bake them and they come out roasted and the tops are glistening and a little bit, you know, ruddy from the paprika and the onion has crisp. And all the butter falls into those crosshatch. Yeah, Uh, exactly. You're giving that butter somewhere to go. It's not going to just slide off. It's going down. (laughs) And then, you know, um, they're very buttery. They're delicious. And you can make three pans of those if you wanted or 200, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when you have it like that and you get all the butter soaking into it and it's scoopable but crispy on the bottom, like it's like a potato boat. It's like its own it's like a yeah. it's like an enormous potato skin. That that sounds pretty rad. No, it's true. It's and and you know, you use like a yellow potato like a Yukon Gold or something like that. But I remember just this like moment in childhood, actually many times where I kind of communed with this little potato where I'd eat the soft part and then I'd fold the crispy skin up like a taco you know oh, that, sounds that was so good. my <laughs> that was my mode of eating that <laughs> oh god on thanksgiving you put a couple of pieces of turkey in the little potato skin taco that sounds pretty good okay now that we're collaborating that's yeah. a turkey taco <laughs> <laughs> okay i love this technique you have for stuffing which is you cube bread yep but before you soak it with stock and all that you toss the bread with melted butter so that the chunks of bread that are on top end up basically crisping into croutons while you're baking them. Right. And and my dressing recipe is very simple, very classic. It's just got, you know, turkey and cooked onion and celery and bread. And the bread is the most important part, right? So I cube like a kind of an open work, like something with open structure, like a ciabatta or something. Mm, okay. But I've found that tossing that kind of stale or dried bread with melted butter... I mean, that ensures that you're going to have that nice crispy dressing top. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, you also fold it into your stock and you moisten it a little bit. But what happens in the oven is that that buttery bread, it does rise up. And on the top, it gets extra crispy. That sounds so good. (laughs) Yeah. It was a technique that I started doing when I was making bread pudding. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like a savory bread pudding, really. right. We'll be back with more Thanksgiving advice from Amy Thielen, author of Company, The Radically Casual Art of Cooking for Others. And then, coming up, Chef Eric Repair with some thoughts on seafood for the holiday. Stick around. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM.
I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're getting Thanksgiving dinner advice and inspiration this week, so let's get back into it with cookbook author Amy Thielen. Okay, so now I want to talk to you about your book. The book is called Company, and it is a book Mm -hmm. of menus for entertaining, but I think you're really careful not to use the word entertaining because that makes us think of you get at the fussy candles and you get all this. And like for you, it's like, I want to have people over and I want to have a great time and we're going to have great food, but it doesn't have to be, you know, all pomp and circumstance. Um, oh, exactly. But yeah. how do you relax? Like you cook a lot for groups. And for those of us, maybe Thanksgiving is like the one time a year where we're really cooking for a big crowd. How do you learn to let go and relax and actually have a good time doing it? How do you not get stressed? I mean, for me, you know, weekends have been always when I throw dinner parties um, almost once a week, pretty much. And for me, dinner parties are when I do relax, okay. you know, so cooking for others, it it's really fun if you kind of let go of this pressure you put on yourself. And this is especially really important to do at Thanksgiving, which is a time when, you know, that pressure to perform you know, it doesn't come from the other people, though. You have to realize it comes, the call is coming from inside the house, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's our own perfectionism that's causing, like putting this pressure on ourselves. And I think that for me, one way that I've really relieved that is to just take joy and find enjoyment in the process itself. Mm. Now, Thanksgiving's a huge meal, so it's, you know, you do have to have some organization, you start ahead, you know, so that you do have time to relax a little bit. But I think it's really important to, like, kind of, um, yeah, commune with, like, what we're doing, you know, and enjoy, enjoy what's going on in the pan in front of you. And just that sensory overload that is cooking, especially at Thanksgiving when you've got, like, a full range top full of stuff, you know, but... All of those smells and those flavors, everything's just like, it's so beautiful. Mm, I love that. It's almost like you have to have gratitude for the moment, even if even if it, it's a little stressful. <laughs> it can be a little stressful, yeah, let's yeah, be honest, yeah. especially Thanksgiving, because, you know, you're coordinating, like, more things than you usually have to coordinate. Sure, sure, sure. But at the same time, you have to remember that, you know, people are just super grateful that you're cooking for them yeah. and that you're doing that and you're putting that work in. And and they'll get you back sometime too. But don't you notice when you go to somebody's house, like everything tastes better at somebody else's yeah, house? Yeah, because I didn't have to do right? it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, well, it's true. Well, from a practical <laughs> standpoint too, you also have this idea of um, what you call anti-hero appetizers, which I kind of love. <laughs> Tell us what you mean by anti-hero appetizers and what are some good examples? I mean, especially when you're making a big meal. Um, you don't want to be, we don't need to be heroes here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, if in addition to making the meal, we're also making these kind of elaborate appetizers, it's kind of like a Tracy Flick moment. You know what I mean? It's like overachieving. <laughs> and it is, and really, honestly, it's just not necessary because we don't want to fill up, especially on a holiday. We want to reserve some space and some hunger and appetite for the main event. Yeah. So anti-hero appetizers are just kind of like, rummaging through your fridge and finding something that you can kind of whip together and also just kind of expanding, you know, the notion of like, what is something to snack on? Sometimes it's, it's popcorn, you know, like tossed with a little bit of extra curry powder or something. Sometimes I've made 
uh, a really beautiful like grilled cheese sandwich with like great sourdough and, you know, put a lot of care and attention to it and like swipe one side with harissa and like use two or three different kinds of cheese. And then you rub a cut clove of garlic along the top and mm. then you just slice it into these little tiny squares like you would for, you know, a two-year-old. Yeah. And then you put that in front of all these people and adults will go mad for this. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, the, well <laughs> that does sound amazing. But now I'm having like horror, horrible visions of like, oh my God, now I'm making like 18 grilled cheese sandwiches because people can't get enough. <laughs> oh, well, it, it, it could devolve into that. And you want to be careful. But, you know, sometimes I'll just like, I'll see what do I have in the cheese drawer and I'll like crumble up some feta and then put it in a bowl with, um, uh, loosen it up with a little bit of cream or maybe a little yogurt. And then, you know, I'll make like a, a look on the shelf and see if I've got some dried fruit and, you know, just kind of macerate that with a little bit of lemon, olive oil, pinch curry powder, whatever, mm -hmm. um, and, and put that on top. All these things next to grilled bread are just... And set that out with like a, a big old hunk of bread and tell people to help themselves. Right? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have to be super complicated. You know, sometimes the simple things are really good. Like just toasted hazelnuts with, you know, the skins oven toasted and you rub off the skins, you put them in a little bowl. Mm -hmm. And one thing I think that's important is that we want to... Any appetizers you do have, they don't have to be like capacious. They can... They should be snug. You know, mm -hmm. so your olives, your pickles, your vegetables, whatever, they should be like kind of crowded in these little bowls. It's just somehow more appealing. It feels like there's more. It just like, it feels like it works. It, The bowl fits yeah, yeah. the thing. Small Does bowls, okay. Because <laughs> uh, it looks like it's bountiful. Small bowls. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a huge collection of little tiny small bowls. Right on. And you know, okay, so when we get to the end of the day, there's going to be cleaning. There's sort of no avoiding that. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, you know, you're in a home where people are like, oh my goodness, you did all the cooking. We'll do the cleaning. And you're like, okay, great. Meanwhile, you've cleaned as you went. But uh, you do have this really lovely essay called A Note on Cleaning Up in the book. Tell us about that. Well, I wanted to write about cleaning because it's such an integral part of cooking. And I feel like it's where some people get derailed. And, you know, even as like a committed cook, I, I sometimes get derailed with it too, because it does get to be a lot. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's, it's hard to want to cook on a daily basis. And if you don't really, if some little part of you doesn't sort of take some enjoyment, at least in the process of cleaning. And I just mean like that, that feeling of satisfaction that you get from wiping down your countertops um, and cleaning your stove and kind of writing the world, cleaning up the kitchen at the end of the day, at the end of the cooking process, and making sure it's ready to go for tomorrow, mm -hmm. you know? So you can start this whole thing all over again because we're going to be hungry tomorrow, <laughs> you know? If there's one thing God, we there's know. there's more. You people need that, more. <laughs> yes, that people are insatiable, yeah. <laughs> right? No, it's just that we'll wake up and we'll be hungry. And if the kitchen isn't put back together the way that, I like it to be put back together. Yeah. You know, I'm going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I do take a little bit of pleasure in like kind of buttoning things down. Mm -hmm. And I do allow other people to help me, especially on Thanksgiving, which is, let's be honest, a massive meal. But for regular dinner parties, sometimes I, I sort of kick people out. <laughs> I um, <laughs> I do enjoy, you know, getting out the broom and just like, I don't know, finishing it up. Yeah. I love that. Although as a guest, mm -hmm. even if your host is trying to kick you out, you always have to insist <laughs> at least once <laughs> that you'll help clean up. 
<laughs> Guest rules. Oh yeah, it's like accepting a piece of pie. <laughs> yeah, always insist at least once. If they if they really say get out, okay, fine. Well, Amy, this has been really, really lovely talking with you. It's been so fun. It's been really fun talking about Turkey and all the rest of it with you. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving to you. Amy Thielen is the author of Company, The Radically Casual Art of Cooking for Others. And she left us with a recipe for those melty, soft, onion-topped, funhouse baked potatoes. You can find it at SplendidTable.org. For over 30 years, Eric Prepare has been the chef at Le Bernardin, one of the most revered restaurants in New York, really in New York's history. It's kept the maximum rating of four stars from the New York Times for almost four full decades. And pretty much all they serve is seafood. But you'd probably be surprised at how simply they prepare it. Eric's new cookbook, in fact, is called Seafood Simple. And we're going to get into some easy, festive appetizers or a main to go with your Thanksgiving spread. Hey, chef. It's great to see you. It's great to see you and to hear you, too. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's super busy in the restaurant right now, so thanks for making the time. But I have to ask you, um, do you cook for Thanksgiving at home? Oh, yes. First of all, Le Bernardin, which is a seafood restaurant, is closed because we do not serve turkey. Uh, So it's it's our day (laughs) off at Le Bernardin. Everybody goes home. And uh, and we need a break because you're right, it's the busy season. However, I cook at home and it's fun to entertain and have friends and family. And I do that every year. Oh, terrific. Since you do it every year, do you switch it up every year? Is it like a, a, a you know something you challenge yourself to be creative with? Or do you have favorites you go back to? I imagine, you know, your grandmother didn't make turkey at home every, you know, last Thursday in November. So no. what do you do? So in France, we don't have Thanksgiving. But... Right. Our Christmas Eve meal in France is very similar to Thanksgiving in many ways because mm. we usually cook a, um, a huge chicken or a capon or, or sometimes a turkey. And mm. uh, what I do every year, I do not cook a turkey because I find it a bit, mm, how can I say, dry for my taste. <laughs> so I, uh, I cook a capon and I stuff Ooh. the capon with foie gras and truffles and okay uh, sure and and then <laughs> well <laughs> that's that's my and that's it's year after year i don't try to be creative i try to keep that tradition alive and mm-hmm. uh, the family seems to like it a lot and then i use uh, a lot of the american culture in the celebration which is of course mm. the um having the sweet potato uh, puree and the pumpkin pie and sometimes oh, I, I, I uh, in, in the garnishes, of course, we have some Brussels sprouts and things like that that go uh, along with the with the capon. Oh, I love that! I love that you're combining. You know, I mean, obviously, you've lived in the U.S. for I mean, forty years, uh, yes, or, or, or nearly. So, but I love that you. Ha- I love the idea. Of, like Eric Repair has a pumpkin pie. <laughs> well, so I'm a very bad pastry chef. I'm, I'm really <laughs> lousy. I'm, I, I think cooking it's not a problem, but the pastries, I ask our pastry chef Orlando at, at Le Bernardin to make uh, the, the, to make the dessert and that way it's safe for the family. <laughs> and the cranberries, the cranberries, I'm very 
loyal to what I have seen on the beginning when I came to America, which is like the jello coming from the can. You know, I open the can, uh -huh, uh -huh, the jello, and you see the marks of the can around. And yeah. I slice <laughs> you serve it. that too? I do that on the side, yes. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you outsource the pumpkin pie and you outsource the cranberry jelly. So I, yes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> okay, so I love so much about your book, Seafood Simple. Um, I love seafood, and you, you're really not kidding about the simple part of it. Um, simple both in technique, execution, but also simple in the sense of, you know, you, you, you like the flavors to be clear. You're not adding a thousand different flavors to the dishes in, in the book. So if you're thinking about a Thanksgiving table, what are some of the simpler seafood dishes you might recommend as a starter for us? Well, as a starter, uh, if you like raw fish, if you like marinated fish, you can mm -hmm. definitely play with a tartare, tuna tartare, which is a very simple dish. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're going to have poultry later, you can put on the table a signature dish from Le Bernardin. Actually, it's called the salmon rillette, which is a salmon dip. It's like mm. poached salmon in white wine mixed with grounded um, smoked salmon, mayonnaise and chives. And that's, it's mm. very convivial and you share with your table and we have the recipe in a book. It's very, very simple. And mm -hmm. uh, so that could be done. And then if you, if you are planning to do some seafood for the entire table and not have necessarily the poultry or meat, I think the back snapper is a very good recipe to have, the back snapper in a salt crust mm -hmm. because it requires some salt, few egg, egg white, and then the snapper is baked in that crust. It's very, very simple. Oh, I love that. Okay, let's dive a little bit into the items that you just talked about because I, I love them and I'm fascinated by them. The salmon rillette. So traditionally, rillette is made with pork, right? Pork or duck or, or goose. And but something with, with, that is usually meat and, and fatty, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's typically cooked down very long. You take the meat, you shred it, and then you combine it with savory seasonings and lots of fat. So the salmon, you know, it's, it's much lighter. Yes, And you don't course. cook it as hard. Take us step-by-step step a little bit through the recipe. I know you just described it in, in, in broad strokes, but, but how do you control, how do you make sure it's wonderful? Sure. So what we do, we, we have some smoked salmon and we have some fresh salmon in that recipe. So the, okay. the smoked salmon, we grind it or you can chop it with a knife very thinly. And then... The fresh salmon, we cut it in dice or small pieces, like one inch uh, long or squares. And okay. um, we take some white wine, bring it to boil. Then we add some shallots in it. If you don't have shallots, you can put onions. And mm -hmm. then we add the fresh salmon in it. And then okay. we lower the temperature. We let it simmer a little bit. So the salmon cooks very gently. And we try to cook it kind of like very medium rare on the rare side. Okay. Because if not, it becomes dry and tasteless. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then we remove it from the liquid and we let it cool in a, in the kitchen or in a fridge if you want to go a bit faster until mm -hmm. it's completely cold. And then in a, in a container, we mix it with the chopped smoked salmon that we have. And then we put some mayonnaise and uh, chives that are thinly sliced. And mm -hmm. we mix it with salt pepper. And we have our salmon rillette. And, and that's it. And that's it. And it's really, 
it's really incredible because it's so good. You think it's much more complicated than what it is. It's, it's actually it's very simple. It's a signature at Le Bernardin. Le Bernardin. Uh, yeah. Uh, we put that on the table uh, for lunch uh, every day at Le Bernardin because it's a tradition since Le Bernardin opened. And yeah. we, we have our clients loving it all the time. And when we try to do something else, they really, really are mad at us. <laughs> they want it back. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it is actually that simple. I I have I have actually tasted it before and it's it's mind-bendingly good. I've had versions elsewhere that are not nearly as wonderful. What is the difference then? Like how how is if it's yours that simple, why is it so much better? How do you make sure that it's I, as gorgeous as you want it to be? I believe it's a couple of uh details that are important. First of all, making sure that it's the way you cook the salmon is very gentle. Mm, okay. You don't want to rush the process and you don't want to be too uh, too harsh with the flame because, again, as soon as the salmon is overcooked, it becomes hard and tasteless. Okay, and yeah. sometimes some some people who make salmon rillette have the tendency to have the salmon rillette very dry. Ours mm-hmm. is very yeah, yeah. moist because the salmon, again, is medium rare. Yeah, it's almost creamy, right? It's yeah. very creamy. And then when we mix it with the mayonnaise, we make sure that we are very gentle and we don't break it too much. So it's, uh, okay, it's yeah, not yeah, yeah. too chunky, but it has a bit of texture. And then, yeah, it's not a puree. Yeah, exactly. And then the chives go at the very end, maybe like half hour or an hour before we serve it. Because if you put the chives too much ahead of time, then the salmon rillettes start to have the oniony flavor, which is too strong. And uh, I think that makes the difference in between our Salmon Riette and and some other ones, maybe. We'll be back with more from Chef Eric Repair, author of Seafood Simple. And then Chef Pierre Cham is bringing the most flavorful sides from West Africa. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're all about having some fun on Thanksgiving today, and we're talking with Chef Eric Repair on how to do that with some terrifically simple ways with seafood. Let's get back to it with him. I have to say, Chef, like, obviously you're known for your seafood, but the thing that I'm always blown away um, when I hear you talk about food, certainly when I taste it, is your sauce work. Yes. And your understanding of how to manipulate these very... Simple flavors. I, I, like one thing I remember you saying years ago was uh, when you're making a vinaigrette, you always take the garlic or the shallots and you first add that with vinegar. Yes. Because it's important for the vinegar and the shallot or the vinegar and the, and the garlic to have some time together first before you make the rest of the vinaigrette. And I've never made it any other way because that does calm that flavor down. Yes. Because onion flavor and garlic flavor, when it's raw, can be very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And in a vinaigrette, when you mix it first with the vinegar, the acidity basically cook the, the raw onion or raw garlic and mm-hmm. tone down that flavor that is aggressive and make it much softer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are like the techniques that you pick up over <laughs> many decades of cooking, I'm sure. Um, I want to get to that main course that you talked about, the salt-baked uh, snapper. snapper. Yes. Uh, similar to the riette, walk us through that. How do you... So, okay, you have a big, beautiful snapper in front of you. Yes. I think one thing people will ask is temperature and time. Like, they'll be curious about that. Yes. The whole... Yeah, the, you have the whole fish, right? The whole fish, head on, 
skin on. Yes, skin on, head on, and uh, gird it, of course. And then uh, in the belly, if you wish, you can add some aromatics. You can, if you have time, rosemary or herb de Provence, or you want to put some pieces of lemon, you can, that will add some flavor. But if yeah. not, the snapper will be delicious anyway. It's not, it's, you know, it has some very refined um, uh, flavors and texture. Mm-hmm. What we do, we use egg whites and salt, fine sea salt or kosher salt. Okay. We mix the egg whites and the salt together. Okay. And we basically create like um, a salt mixture that is very moist. Um, the snapper doesn't need to be seasoned because the salt will definitely bring some uh, seasoning to the to the fish. You can put pepper if you wish, but uh, it's no, it's no need for salt. And and then you put the fish on the sheet tray. Mm-hmm. You cover it completely with the sea salt mixture, and then it goes into the oven. I mean, I recommend, I think, uh, we can go to 350, 375, or you can go a bit faster at 400, depending on the mm-hmm. size of the fish. Okay, sure. Um, and then you cook it for about 20 minutes to half hour. I, I'm assuming that you have a snapper that is about four to six pounds, okay. which is what you find mostly on the, on the market. You cook it for 30 minutes, and then you remove it from the oven, and you let it rest for about 30 minutes. It will stay warm and hot in, in, because of the salt crust. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to know if the fish is cooked, what we, we have a technique we use. We don't use a thermometer. We use a metal skewer. And we go through the flesh of the fish. Mm-hmm. And we leave it. So the, the, the skewer goes through the salt, mm-hmm. th- through the flesh of the fish. And then we leave it for 15 seconds. Then we touch the top of our hand. And the skewer should be warm. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah. If the skewer is cold, it means the snapper is not cooked. And then if the skewers come back too hot, it's probably overcooked. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you, you basically you burn yourself and you're punished. But um, yeah. <laughs> but there's no reason to do that. But you put it at 400 degrees and then half hour, remove it, let it rest, and then serve it. it it's going to be perfect. It's almost guaranteed. If the yeah. fish is four to six pounds. That's great. By the way, when you remove the salt, so you use a spoon or a spatula. Okay. When you remove the salt, the, the skin of the fish will come with the salt. So you have to break a little bit the, the crust because it's going to be solid. The egg white and the, and the salt will become uh, hard. You break it a little bit and then yeah. you remove it. The skin will come out of the snapper. Yeah. And then you will have the fish basically um, without skin and without the salt. And you just have to separate it from the bone with yeah. a spatula or, or a spoon. And because the fish will be cooked, it will be easy to remove from yeah. the bone. You lift the fish bone and you do the same with the filet that is underneath. Yeah. And you just serve it with a drizzle of olive oil and lemon. A bit of olive oil and lemon juice, and that's it. And yeah. it's very simple. I mean, you have very little to do. You just have to make sure that you keep an eye on your oven. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing I love about this technique, right, is it automatically seasons the fish. Obviously, there's a lot of salt. And somehow, magically, it never makes it too salty. No, it doesn't because the skin is protective from the flesh. Ah, it, okay. You see, like, the skin absorb and will will definitely, the salt will definitely penetrate a little bit the flesh, 
but never too much. Yeah. It's kind of amazing because you see all that salt and you're like, oh my God, and then you taste it. It always just tastes perfectly. I guess the one thing to be careful of is when you're breaking the salt crust, you really do remove the salt crust because then if you start taking the flesh and it's like yes. you, you get part of the crust on it, then obviously that will be very salty. So I guess you do have to be a little careful in breaking that. But, yeah, um, you have to be de- definitely careful and make sure the salt is no longer in contact with the flesh. Yeah. Let me ask you one more sort of like philosophical technique question. Sure. You know, something I've always noticed about your cuisine, and that's reflected in the book, is how gentle you are with the fish, right? You've talked about that with the riettes. You know, you're poaching it gently. You're only cooking it medium rare. You don't want to really cook the salmon. Um, and even with the snapper, you're talking about baking it gently in the salt. Um, I know half of your menu typically is raw or what you call barely touched. <laughs> and then yes. the other half that's cooked, most of the time it, you feature steaming and baking more than, you know, what you might think of as sexier words, like grilling, searing, roasting. Yes. Why do you think these more gentle techniques highlight the fish better? Well, seafood and fish in general is very delicate, especially white fish that are not rich in in oil or fats, Mm -hmm. um, are extremely delicate, not only in texture, but in flavors. And it's very easy to overwhelm the delicacy of the fish. Let's say we, we take a piece of halibut and you grill the halibut or you saute the halibut too much in a pan. You're going to create a crust that will be actually pleasant with the texture. But the halibut, which is a thick fillet usually, for instance, will be underdone in the center and very overcooked on the outside and dry. Mm-hmm. And also the crust, when you create that crust with sautéing in a pan with oil or grilling, will have a flavor that is not the halibut flavor. It's coming from the metal of the pan or it's coming from the flavor of the oil that has been at very high temperature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you really want to enjoy the flavor of the halibut, you want to enjoy the juice and the texture and because it's a very juicy fish, You need to steam it or you need to poach it because that technique is very gentle and it will preserve all the flavors and it's no interaction with any other flavor. So that's why we do that very often. But some species like to be grilled or seared. For instance, if you take a steak of tuna Mm -hmm. and and you grill it or you sear it in a pan or saute it in a pan, the tuna is very rich, in, in is very fatty as a fish, mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in a good way, of course. Yeah, yeah. And that fish can tolerate and can accept to be grilled and that, to have a, that crust. And uh, it's a fish that is much more meaty than a halibut or a snapper. And therefore, that fish can be enhanced by using the technique of grilling or, or sautéing. But a fish like a snapper or cod or halibut that is so delicate, you may want to be very gentle with your approach to it. Yeah. Until you may want to break the rule when you have the habit of cooking with it and say, actually, I can break the rules. I know how to do it. But until then, I recommend that you use gentle techniques to, to again, enhance the, the qualities of those items. I love it. All right, Chef. Thank you so much for making the time for us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Eric Rupert is the author of Seafood Simple, and he's the chef of Le Bernardin in New York City. You can find his recipe for salmon riettes 
at SplendidTable.org. Chef Pierre Cham is one of the great ambassadors of West African food in the U.S. And I actually learned recently that his career was started, weirdly, by a pickpocket. He was traveling in the U.S. from this native Senegal. He was in New York City as a student on his way to college in the Midwest. And unfortunately, his wallet came up missing one day and he had no money for food or rent. So he had to find a job and started working in a restaurant. You know, he can laugh about it now and he calls it a blessing. And since we're talking about Thanksgiving, I'll also say I'm thankful for it because I have learned so many delicious and important things from him. His new book is called Simply West African, and it's full of fantastic modern ways to use the flavors of ginger, coconut, spices, peppers, peanuts, and all the many things that make West African food so incredibly delicious. Hey, chef, it's great to see you. Hey, Francis. Always a pleasure, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, Thanksgiving is obviously right around the corner. And I know a lot of people, you know, they, they kind of want to stick with, you know, something we've always had at the table. You know, so-and-so is going to get mad. My cousin won't talk to me if we don't have turkey. So we don't need to get there. I think a lot of people are going to make their turkey the way they want to make it. But I think a lot, a lot of people, you know, have room to think outside the box a bit with their other dishes. And as I was reading your book, there are just so many amazing vegetables I think would be incredible on a Thanksgiving table. So let's start right away with greens. I feel like there's never enough greens on the Thanksgiving table. And you have coconut braised collard greens with butternut squash in your book. Mm. Tell us about that dish and, and how, you, how you make it. Oh, that's, that's a great option for Thanksgiving. So it's a dish mm-hmm. that, um, that, you know, our, our cuisine is, is leafy-based greens in West Africa. So I use collard greens, but you can also use any greens really that you, you like. You can use kale, you can, I mean, it's really up to you. But collard greens is like a, a kind of a meaty green. So you just mm-hmm. first cook the greens ahead of time. You can even do it the day before, really, because collard greens take a certain time, like an hour to cook. If you want it really soft, you can do it less than that, between 30 minutes and an hour, and then you taste it as you go. And once it's cooked, you stop the cooking, you shock it, and then you keep it on the side while you saute some um, onions, the aromatics, onions, garlic, and um, some ginger to bring some heat to it. Mm. And and you add then coconut milk and your butternut squash that you have diced in, in little cubes. And you just cook it slowly, add some turmeric, so, so, so add some flavor to it, and some lemon juice to finish it. And once the butternut squash have softened, you season it, adjust the seasoning with salt and pepper, and you chop up your, your colored greens that you have cooked up and just simply fold it in it. And that's, that's as simple as that. You know, if you want to add some chili pepper to it, some heat, you can add some cayenne. That's very much optional. And, but that's like some, the way I like it. And, and that's another, uh, you know, a very simple way to bring West African flavor, healthy greens into your Thanksgiving. Oh, it sounds so good. And I can totally imagine like that sort of sweetness of the squash and the creaminess of the coconut milk. And I feel like collard greens has a rep for being very bitter, but I feel like after you've cooked it for a long time, a lot of that bitterness goes away. It just has a deep, dark green yeah, flavor. Yeah, that's that's how you, you, you cook it a little longer. And you can even keep the, the bright greenness by putting like a pinch of baking soda. That's a trick that a lot of oh, people, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, a pinch of baking soda into the boiling water and that keeps that green, like lower the acidity of the boiling water. So that's when cooking becomes chemistry. It's always this chemistry. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, again, you know, when you finish that, 
it's always good to top it with fresh greens, you know, like cilantro and scallions, chopped up scallions before mm. serving. So you have all those layers of flavor that hit you on, on this very simple collard green and butternut squash side. I love it. So you say this is a way to bring West African flavors to the table. And I know ginger obviously is a huge part of West African cuisine, leafy greens as well. But is this dish... Um, is this dish typical of a region or is this something you invented? Is there an inspiration? Is there a traditional oh, 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 dish oh, that inspired ins- this? It's an inspiration. It's a dish that you see traditionally, you see it in Benin and <laughs> funny enough in Bahia, in Brazil. Mm-hmm, and okay. I've often oh, in Benin and Brazil, they use palm oil or dende oil. Okay. So that's the, this red palm oil. You have to source it though. So you have like a palm oil that's sustainably sourced. It's very, very uh, special, you know, in terms of the the floral essence that it has, the flavor that it has is quite unique. But if mm. you don't have palm oil, you can just skip it and, and go ahead with like a, your, your favorite oil. So in Brazil and, and Benin, that's what they would use. And, and that dish is like that, that oil just adds to it. And that's where the inspiration comes from. And uh, the the colored greens is the 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 one I use that I've added. But usually they use amaranth leaves in in Benin, for instance. And uh, they have other type of leaves that are very popular from the region. There's so many varieties of greens in West Africa. And if you're using different greens that cook less time than pork colored green, you you can add it at the end. You can start with your butternut squash and finish the cooking of the greens within the sauce itself, within the stew. So collard green is the one that takes a longer time. That's why we cook it separately. Yeah. But you could use like spinach, right? Like spinach oh, yeah. would be spinach, very quick. And be... You finish with spinach, exactly. You wait until your squash are almost finished and then you dump your spinach and simply fold it into the, the stew. That's awesome. Okay, I want to get to another dish. Um, God, I could, I could really just like fire through all of them in this book. It's so good. <laughs> um, and this is very Thanksgiving-y. You have what seems like a, a very sort of... Um, you know, sort of a new classic, the, the crispy roasted Brussels sprouts, uh. high heat. You get the Brussels sprouts, you know, sort of seared on the side, down on the sheet tray, and they're crispy. But you do like a harissa glaze on them. Tell us about this one. Harissa glaze is actually inspired by North African uh, cuisine. Uh, harissa is very popular in Senegal with its Tunisian background. And uh, it's very simple. Olive oil or, or vegetable oil, finely chopped garlic, honey, about two tablespoons of honey, same amount of harissa and a little bit of lemon zest and juice, lemon juice to finish it. And you just simply saute the oil and the garlic, you know, heat the mm-hmm. oil, saute the garlic in it. Once the garlic softens, it has to be fragrant, just a minute, you add your honey and your harissa and you stir it with a wooden spoon until it starts to thicken. And before it gets too hard, you add your lemon juice and you keep stirring it. This will delay it, but you want to return it to a level of thickness so it can coat the Brussels sprouts. The Brussels sprouts have been, you know, cut in half and roast in the oven for like, Mm -hmm. uh, with olive oil, for like, uh, until they soften for for about uh, 40 minutes, about, you know, until they have a nice, depending on the size, you know, if they're too small, much less time. And yeah. uh, if, they, if they're bigger, you can go a little further. Keep an eye on it. You want it to have like a nice brown caramelized, almost crispiness to it. Then you f- pull it out of the oven and you s- just put it in a bowl with that glaze. And you make sure you just coat all the Brussels sprout with that beautiful, sweet and spicy glaze. Oh, that sounds very great. The harissa and honey combination. I, I don't think I've had that before. Well, harissa... You know, it has that like fermented chili quality mm. that's like a paste and it has 
like mm-hmm. coriander, lots of like floral spices. Yeah. Um, so it's like sort of sweet. Not not really sweet. It's like sort of salty, a little bit sour. Yeah. Hot, pungent, but mixing it with the honey and the lemon juice sounds so good. Oh yeah. You know, it it rounds it up. The sweetness of the honey. But also the caramelization that comes and really mm-hmm. takes to the, 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 the smokiness because you have, you know, remember you have roasted the Brussels sprouts and almost to like it darkens. So there's a smokiness, the char, the char flavor from the uh, Brussels sprouts with the honey and the harissa. It, it really is a, a quite um, amazing combination. And uh, that, that's something that's a simple, very simple recipe, really simple ingredients. And the, the results are, are magical. Yeah. I'm not going to even wait till Thanksgiving for that one. That, that, that's going on the table <laughs> this Sunday. <laughs> All right, Chef. Well, this has been so fun. I can't wait to cook these dishes. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And thanks for coming by. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Francis. Chef Pierre Cham is author with his wife, Lisa Katayama, of Simply West African. Easy, joyful recipes for every kitchen. You can find his recipe for coconut collard greens with butternut squash at splendidtable.org. And that is our show for this week. We hope you've given you a little inspiration for your Thanksgiving table, whether you know, you're a hardcore traditionalist or someone who likes to do something new every year. But whatever you do, however messy and stressed out the cooking gets, just remember, everything is hard enough as it is. Who cares if the potatoes get a little lumpy? Take the day, hold on close to your loved ones. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lubke, producer Eric Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your downloads, and take time to leave us a review. We really want to hear what you think. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. APM Studios.